Railroads can't seem to catch a break. From getting blasted by Congress and business for poor service levels to having staffing issues from the pandemic, it seems like the rail industry might go off the rails. Luckily for us, there is a complex Byzantine process in place to slow roll this potential supply chain catastrophe. Additionally, many large publicly traded companies and brokerages utilize their own rail cars, and any service disruptions by the railroads risks cutting into their profits. Are we about to go off the rails? We'll find out in this episode of Loaded and Rolled. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Wasson here, enterprise trucking carrier expert. And this recent rail escalation began when members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, try saying that 12 times long, approved measures authorizing a strike. The last time this occurred was around 2011. The union itself represents over 57,000 U.S. railroad employees, and the vote was legitimately 99.5% for approval. This comes after the 30-day cooling-off period mandated under the Railway Labor Act, or RLA, after both sides failed to reach an agreement before the National Mediation Board. The union, as reported by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, is one of 13 rail worker unions negotiating a national labor contract after the previous one expired in 2019. Now, depending upon whom you ask, the Railway Labor Act helps both sides mediate and avoid strikes, or it can be used as a way to deny collective bargaining and curtail the ability of railroad workers to exercise their rights. Railroad strikes are not a new phenomenon, as before the passage of the RLA in 1926, there was the Great Railway Strike of 1877 and the Pullman Strike of 1894. The union argues that the pandemic and the focus on profits by Class 1 rail carriers caused them to fire or furlough a third of their nationwide workforce while making the remaining employees work longer hours. This caused longer running trains and led to infrastructure shutdowns due to the rail network not being designed to handle the longer trains. As the post-pandemic recovery began, the rail carriers failed to adequately staff their operations, according to the union and implemented attendance policies that failed to provide engineers scheduled time off. On the other side of the equation, publicly traded Class 1 railroads face increasing pressure from investors to improve profitability and operating ratios. A major development in this trend is precision scheduled railroading, or PS are and its resulting impact on railroad service levels. PSR practices were put in place well before the pandemic, according to the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Estimates from the TTD state that in the five years prior to the pandemic, BNSF cut its train and engine workforce by 27%, Norfolk Southern reduced its train and engine workforce by up to 32%, and CSX, not wanting to be outdone, slashed its train and engine headcount by 43%. Now, PSR resulted in greater profits, but less equipment and availability of replacement rail crews, which, before the pandemic disruption, represented a fragile equilibrium. A next step to watch out for, which we're currently going to talk about, is the Biden administration moves to prevent the strike by appointing a three-member emergency board to investigate the dispute and make recommendations. 
Joining us today to talk about what this all means for railroads is FreightWave's very own Mike Bowdendistel. Before becoming an analyst and market expert at FreightWaves, Mike was a senior sell-side equity research analyst and covered publicly traded railroad suppliers, manufacturers, and just about anything involving railroad equipment. He's a CFA charter holder and has over 15 years of experience in the freight transportation industry. Mike, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the show. Good to see you, Thomas. How are you? Doing pretty well. We got a lot going on, it looks like, in the rail space. And so, you know, kind of diving in, trying to set the table here. Um, if there's a legitimate strike, uh, you know, will this be a legit strike? And if so, uh, how is this going to impact these Class 1 railroads? So I don't think you have to worry about having at least a prolonged strike. I mean, this whole, um, you know, Railway Labor Act, like you said, is really designed to prevent a strike. It's have all these sort of steps that have to be met in order for it to be a legal strike. And even if uh, nothing happens in the next 60 days, and uh, we're here talking about the same thing in mid-September, and those 157,000 workers are ready, willing, and able to walk off the job, um, you know, then Congress is going to intervene. And I think it'll be a matter of hours before they're they're back on the job. I don't think that Congress is going to allow those workers to shut down the economy. Um, I don't think particularly right, you know, just a few weeks before the midterm elections, that's what the democratically controlled Congress wants people to be talking about, just one more thing that has the potential to increase inflation. You think about all the things that, that go on the railroad, a lot of those, those things are the, some of the most inflationary parts of the economy already. And so I, I don't think you have to worry about a, a prolonged strike if it, it, I think things right now are sort of not progressing or stalling right according to, to schedule. So, um, you know, surprised no one that, uh, you know, Biden uh, appointed the presidential emergency board on Friday, um, you know, it, it, meeting with the, the Saudi princes uh, did not, uh, you know, distract him from, from, from that uh, necessary task. Um, and, and, and so that was the, the least uh, unexpected thing that, that, that could have happened. Um, but I don't, I don't think you have to worry about a full strike. Now, that said, there are, you, you, like you said, I mean, the, the relations between management and labor, not great right now. Service is poor. Um, you know, in, in investors have seen the, the multiples, you know, contract. Investors are, are, are willing to pay a little bit less for the for the railroads as a multiple of earnings than they were uh, earlier in the year. I and mean, it's true for the you know, whole stock market, but, um, you know, rails are, are, are part of that. And I want to bring up an image here. It's Exhibit 3, which is basically a timeline of where we've been at. And what kind of blows my mind especially is this process. And so um, that's Exhibit 1. We have one where uh, the rail, here we go. Exhibit 3 has dates. So this has been going on since like June the 14th, where there was a National Mediation Board. Uh, There's a cooling off period. And then it looks like where we're at right now, we're kind of in this middle step on July. The PEB, this board is uh, basically appointed by President Biden. Another 30-day cooling off period begins. And then basically by the middle of August, there is a third and final cooling day period. So I guess what we're saying is potentially, um, you know, we can strike by September 18th, it appears. So there's this weird thing, I guess, a lot of people don't know about with the labor negotiations where there's multiple cooling off periods. Is this something that, you know, equities researchers are as familiar with? Are we going to be in like uncharted territory or do you feel it's kind of a, a brinkmanship so they can try to get a better deal? Well, I think the, the equity research analysts have done a nice job of, um, you know, explaining the Railway Labor um, Act to their investors, you know, with exhibits like that for those that are, that are not familiar with it. And so 
it's really designed so there isn't a strike. So it's it's designed so the, the railway workers cannot just walk off the job on a whim. I mean, that would be an illegal strike if, if that were to happen. There's certain rules of engagement and, you know, graphic like that, you know, lays out the, the rules of engagement. And, you know, there's a number of, of processes that, that have to take place before there, there actually, um, you know, is a strike. That, that top uh, bullet point, um, June 14th, was really an important one when we talk about rail and labor relations, because that National Mediation Board ends mediation, which is exactly what labor wanted to happen. That was really, they threw a bone to, to labor in, in that case. And so labor wanted to be released from, from mediation to start the clock on these three 30-day cooling off periods. They wanted it to come to a head while we still have a democratically controlled Congress. In theory, that Congress is more sympathetic to labor and is more likely to take the recommendations from this presidential emergency board. You know, presumably, those recommendations would be more labor-friendly since Biden was the one appointing those, uh, the, those, those boy, board members. So the National Mediation Board really did labor a favor by letting them out of mediation. If, if they would have just dragged their feet, we could have had a, we might have a very different Congress by the time everything comes to a head. But, but that really puts uh, labor in the driver's seat. And looking at the context of this board, I think it's number chart two, the Presidential Emergency Board. It's got, uh, it has basically three people. The first one is Ira Jaffe, a chairman, lecturer at George Washington University, sat on five boards uh, previously under G.W. Bush and Obama. The second person we have is David Twomey, T-W-O-M-E-Y, law professor at Boston College, sat under seven under Reagan, George W., G.W. the second, Clinton and Obama administrations. And finally, the newest person is Barbara uh, Dinehart, an independent arbitrator, uh, previously only been on one board under the Obama administration. Is that something where are these pretty much, uh, for these emergency boards, the goal is to be kind of as nonpartisan partisan as possible and kind of have uh, fair uh, fair representation between labor and management? Is that kind of the thought process behind these boards? In theory, yes. I mean, you know, it's the same theory that says uh, Supreme Court uh, members should be nonpartisan as well. It, does, it doesn't always work out that way. At least this graphic is somewhat encouraging to the fact that they, those, you know, first two board members were under both, um, you know, Democratic and Republican administrations. So you would think that they'd be able to see you know, things from, from both perspectives. Um, you know, if you talk about something like technological advancement, it's not always that technology is, is, is bad. If you're doing something like um, inspecting rail cars or inspecting wheels, and that can be done more effectively uh, via machine uh, versus a, a human, you know, person, you know, it, it, it does make sense to progress with, with that technology. I and mean, that's just sort of one example. But, um, you know, ba- I mean, based on that last graphic, I mean, I think, I think it's, um, seems, you know, maybe more fair than maybe you would initially assume. And looking into, so we're talking about like uh, a legal versus an illegal strike. And right now it looks like they're still haggling. Um, Do you think this is something where for a lot of cares, we talked a little bit about the last time we had you on folks like J.B. Hunt, Schneider, a lot of trucking companies will move into uh, the rail situation. Is this something where with earnings coming up and if there's issues of labor negotiation, could this potentially have an impact on the trucking companies that provide the rail cars if they can't figure out how to work out their problems? Yeah, so it, it could have a detrimental effect in a few ways. I mean, you, you could think about from the from the rails perspective. Let's say it doesn't come to a strike, or the strike is just a few hours, and they get ordered back. Um, you know, with the recommendations of the board, those workers likely have a big raise that cuts into the railroads' margins. I mean, another thing that could happen is 
you know, if, if shippers or, you know, carriers are concerned about a strike on the West Coast, you know, what they would do is, is move the containers to, you know, all water route to the East Coast. Let's say if it's something's going to the Eastern Consumption Center, those are going to be much closer to the, the final destination. So you can, you can truck those, you know, much, much easier. So, you know, it could have that impact as, as well. And, um, you know, there may be uh, intermodal companies that are concerned about the utilization of their containers. I mean, that's something that has been a subpar. I mean, they, they try to get sort of two turns a month is what they say. So try to turn the, the containers that they own twice a month, which I think gets to your question directly. Um, you know, and if, you know, containers are in wrong places or if there's any slowdown in service, even if there isn't a full strike, you know, that can really impair the number of loads that those companies can handle, um, you know, with their given level of equipment. And I'd, I'd read, uh, read about a little bit sometimes. The, the charts were provided earlier by Wolf Research as well. They do some, some really cool stuff. But from your experience as well, uh, looking at ESG initiatives, right now we're getting a big push, right? As rail has horrible service levels, people want to use rail for fuel savings and stuff. Uh, is this something where, you know, we're going to see, even in spite of these service levels, people try to ship more on the rails? Or are we, is there still hope for the truckload companies uh, to, to make the most of it and take advantage of all this uh, disruption? Yeah, not, not all shippers are the same or have the same perspective there. I mean, my pers- perspective is that intermodal is great as long as the service is reliable. And if it's not, then you have to truck it. I mean, the reason intermodal exists, it's, it's really not for ESG. It's because it tends to save shippers 10 or 15%. And if it saves them 10 or 15% and it's consistently one day slower than trucking instead of three days, it takes four days. Instead of two days, it takes three days. You know that's that's fine. I mean, they'll probably be happy with that. They may have enough you have enough in inventory, but uh, when you really have uncertainty like you have now, where a lot of containers are at the ports for nine or more days because those containers can't get on the railroad because the inland you know uh, terminals are too you know congested, you know that's not great service, um, and it's it's hard to justify using uh, intermodal more. Um, you know, there's one uh, big CPG company in, in mind that we talk to all the time uh, about their intermodal and, and, and truckload, um, you know, operations. And sort of my message to them lately was, well, service is terrible. The truckload spot rates have really sort of come down. The, the truckload contract rates are likely to move before you see it really in the intermodal rates. Um, so, you know, now's not the time to convert from truckload to intermodal. If anything, you know, just look at what's most time sensitive and, and, and move that over the highway. And looking at, talking about PSR, precision uh, railroad scheduling, I think is what it is here. Let me see if I got it under here. Uh, That's so, right, yeah. yeah. I think I got it correctly here, but having this precision rail scheduling that's been in place even prior to the pandemic, uh, was that a situation where we're now seeing the drawbacks of it? Or do you think that with this the labor showing uh, you know, showing their willingness to kind of do a little bit of brinkmanship, will there be a push by investors to maybe build a little bit more buffer in terms of manpower? Or do you think PSR and operating ratios are still going to be a huge driver? Yeah, so there's a little bit of difference of opinion of what exactly PSR means. Is it, um, you know, really uh, utilizing the the assets more effectively? Or is it a slash and burn on the cost side? Is it a way to market uh, your company, you know, not market your company to uh, customers, but market it to shareholders. Uh, you know, positive shareholder reaction. You know, is, is that a way to use PSR instead of precision scheduled railroading? So there's there's, there's different opinions of, 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 about 
exactly what it is, but certainly um, your, your statistics earlier about the size of the workforce going way down and having the, the workers do more with fewer people, um, you know, has not been great for, for morale. There's no question about that. And some of the workers, not only are they being asked to work more hours, they're being asked to work hours further away from where they live. So they're having less time at home. And, you know, usually railroads um, can hire pretty easily. And when um, volumes decline, like they did right at the start of the pandemic, they can lay people off, they can furlough workers. And when those volumes return, they call the workers up and they're happy to come right on back because they make more on the railroad than they were making in the interim. That didn't happen this time. You know, that maybe that's because the labor market is so tight for skilled industrial labor and there's just not enough good people out there. Or maybe because, um, you know, last time they, they terminated the railroads, the employees, they um, left with such a bad taste in their mouth and uh, just morale was so bad that they're going to do something else and they're still condo buildings to be built and, and other work to do. So it's kind of like a perfect storm. We saw before the pandemic with this precision schedule railroad, the PSR initiatives cut the headcount between 20 to 40% across the board. Pandemic hits, volumes crater, cut a few more people off. And then like you said, basically they're not willing to come back because they've got other options. So that's kind of like a one-two punch almost for the railroads, right? Yeah. And, and, and why would you join an industry if that's the trajectory and headcount, right? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It does take. Uh, it also takes a long time for workers to get to get trained. But um, but but really, I mean, I think you you talked to, to railroad, you know, workers, and there's been a few that have called up on on Grace Sharkey's show, and I've been on on her show, um, the, the the radio show that is, and you know, they talk about just how terrible the, the the morale is, and it's it's easy to see why reading uh, the article that Rachel Premack wrote for Freightwaves uh, last week. And looking at it, I'm kind of curious about demographics. I don't know if you know this one as well. I know with truck drivers, we've got an aging population. A lot of people are retiring. Uh, I heard back in the day, rail was pretty good. Good job, put in 20 to 30 years, get a nice pension. Uh, is this something where, is there any fear that a lot more folks are just going to retire and not re-enter or that the, the job's no longer even worth it, even with the union benefits? Is there kind of like a demographic challenge to attracting people? There, there is a demographic challenge. I don't know that the age is as advanced as the long haul truck driver is, but it tends to be a career where someone goes into it, you know, early on and they've been there a long time. I mean, there's a lot of railroad workers that have a tremendous amount of seniority. And like you said, I mean, they, they get paid pretty well. They have great benefits, you know, you know pension, something that not a lot of people um, in the, the private sector, you know, get any more. So there's a lot of good reasons to to work for the railroad. Uh, still, it's just the job I think has gotten to be more grueling, and the um, the market is telling us that maybe the um, those guys aren't getting paid enough for what they for what they do, or for how challenging the the, the job is, or or maybe it's temporary and, and just the job market needs to cool off a little bit. I think sort of time time will tell, but it does seem to be the railroad's top objective is getting workers in there, getting those workers trained, um, which they're really sort of behind on. And kind of thinking about, we mentioned strikes earlier. We have all this process before you can officially strike. Uh, you know, we see trucking strikes around ports, owner operators with AB5, but is it legitimately, this is what I'm curious about, with rail, you can have an illegal strike basically and then just force you to work if it's not through this process? Yeah, I mean, there's certain rules of engagement. I mean, so the idea is you can't just walk off the job at any moment. There, there, you have to follow 
this process um, in order to make it a quote unquote legal strike. And so you would be you know, breaking the law if a union says, OK, we're not showing up you know, tomorrow sort of out of nowhere. And, and, the, and the idea behind that was let's not make the you know, U.S. economy you know, teeter on the brink of collapse at any moment. So that's why they put that you know, Railway Labor Act in place, um, which is designed to prevent strikes and to, um, you know, for, for interstate commerce, you know, to continue. Um, you know, in Canada, there's, you know, those, la- those um, rules of engagement as well, but the strikes seem to be more frequent. It seems to be like, well, they're, they're, you know, there are strikes that are more frequent, but it tends to be like, you know, one union and the railroad will have management sort of employees fill in for that, you know, particular function to the extent they can. So um, have seen that happen more often in, in Canada. I mean, there really hasn't been a major, you know, rail strike, like you said, in, in a long time in the U.S. And I wanted to bring up another chart, last chart up here, just to show how crazy it is. It's Exhibit 4, the rail negotiating process. This is from Wolf Research and the National Railway Labor Conference. They decided to make a handy-dandy flowchart. So remember we showed earlier some of these dates, but it's like uh, there's a direct negotiating, then there's the NMB mediation, and so we kind of passed through that in June. And then if the mediation failed, which it did, we had that 30-day cooling off period. And then uh, that's where we had the votes for the strike. And then it's basically uh, they've notified the president and we're doing this uh, PEB board. So we're near the bottom part of our chart here where we hope that they either, you know, totally agree on it or Congress may have to intervene. So like you said earlier, this is the situation where there's a lot of politics involved. So the unions with a Democratic-focused legislator and executive branch, this may be their opportunity to get more compared to if it was after the midterms where there's uncertainty over what the uh, the, the House and the Senate may be, right? Yeah. So in the lower part, lower right part of that, uh, that uh, chart says Congress may, this is in September, Congress may intervene to prevent service disruptions. They'll intervene and they'll intervene quickly. I mean, I think that to, to me, that's the sort of the bottom line here. Um, but, you know, railroads probably will have to pay the employees more and maybe they can't get the uh, technological advancements that they would like. Um, and labor probably keep their benefits. So labor, I think, will, will be in a good good spot. But I don't think we have to worry about uh, trade flows shutting down because of a, of a strike. The, the rail service might still be really poor throughout the rest of this, this year if there's uh, still a lot of freight demand, which is, you know, another question mark. Um, but I, I'm not, you know, concerned about a strike. And kind of looking at it, one last question here regarding rails and especially other setup. There is something about in parts of New York between uh, one person in the train versus two people in the train. I guess there are actually labor mandated guidelines on how many engineers can ride in the train. Is that something that you think still is an important thing? Is that part of like the technological or is that just uh, uh, something worth looking at? Yeah, I think it's a big point of contention between management and labor. And so currently, you have what are called two-man crews. And so each train consists, you have two workers. You have a locomotive engineer who drives the train. You have a conductor, you know, UTU usually, a union, who supports the uh, locomotive engineer. And so uh, the idea is, well, do we really need two-man crews. We used to have larger crews than that. It used to be four-man crews. And, you know, technological advancement made that not necessary because there's an end-of-train device that monitors the air and the air brakes. Um, and because there's that electronic device, you don't need a caboose anymore. Um, and 
that's done, you know, via an electronic device made by WebTech or somebody. And so the, now that uh, trains have gotten to be more advanced on safety, where positive train control is in place on all of the route miles where the train um, it basically connects with either passenger or hazardous materials, it, you know, positive train control is a way to stop a train automatically in the event of human error, miss a switch, you know, going too fast, et cetera, that, um, you know, you really don't need two workers in a train. Maybe you can get away with just, with just one, just the, just the engineer, let's say, of course, labor doesn't like that, it would cut their their ranks. And so I, I do think that that's a big um, you know, point of contention. It's not something that labor is going to, to, to give in on. I think that um, labor would take this all the way to make Congress order them to, to, to go back to work uh, before they conceded on that point. Really appreciate it. We're going to keep an eye on this, Mike. Hopefully no strikes. Hopefully that we can manage to work out our problems. But thanks again so much for coming on the show and just digging into this with us. No problem. Good to see you. And you can find uh, Mike as well. Uh, he's going to have, not only does he talk about the rail, but he also has the Stockout, a newsletter that focuses on CPG. Always check it out. High quality content as always. And be sure to check us out as well, Loaded and Rolling. We have a newsletter, TV, also on tv.freightwaves.com. That's it for today, though. I'm your host, Thomas Watson. Join us next week. We may, in fact, do it live. <laughs>